the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. We are uh, in a series of building for the journey ahead. We've been looking at key areas for growth and development here at Fellowship Bible Church, and we are going to be looking at Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 13 uh, at this time. There's a French magazine called Le Magazine des Voyages de Pêche, and that's about all the French I can do, okay? So don't ask me anything more. And in their 56th edition, they had this rather amazing, it was just like hard to imagine story about a professional fisherman by the name of Arnold Pointer. And uh, what happened, according to the story, Arnold, uh, out fishing, commercial fisherman, caught this great white shark, a female white shark in his nets. And I don't, I wouldn't, I don't know what I would have done if I would have caught a shark in nets or something like that. He, he was like, I'm going to free this shark. And so... As the story goes, he actually cuts his nets open. He frees this shark, which would have faced certain death. And um, he's like, well, that'll be done with the shark, you know. Well, it turns out that um, he had started a budding friendship with this shark, this great white shark. Because every time he'd go out with his boat to kind of catch fish, I mean, this is his livelihood, uh, out would come this great white female shark that he had rescued. And so developed a relationship and actually gave this shark a name, Cindy, okay? And apparently, uh, he, he would write, in fact, this is in the article, it's been two years and she doesn't leave me alone. I think I see a Disney story in the making right here. She follows me everywhere I go and her presence scares all the other fish, which uh, I don't know what to do anymore. If you're a commercial fisherman, uh, that's a big problem. And so he wrote, um, he's quoted in this article, once I stop the boat, she comes to me. She turns on her back and lets me pet her belly and neck, and she grunts, and she turns her eyes over and moves her fins up and down, hitting the water happily, okay? And so here you are, you know, and he's got this shark, you know? So he's got a new business, you know, come pet Cindy, the pet white shark, you know, because I can't catch any fish anymore. Well, when you hear about great white sharks and people, this is usually not some sort of little budding story. Uh, this is usually like someone loses a limb or dies, right? Isn't that what happens when humans come in contact with great white sharks. Well, this is all really nice, except there is one just major problem with this. This story, though it was published, is a hoax. It's not true. Doesn't happen. Let me tell you another story that's a hoax. That you can have it all. That you, you can love God on your terms. And you can love your money and do whatever you want. In fact, you can pursue wealth unrestricted. Doesn't matter. You can have it all. Let me tell you something that's not true. It's the American dream apart from really knowing Christ. Now, Jesus said a lot of alarming things when he was on this earth 2,000 years ago. He authenticated the world that he was God through his miracles, through his wisdom. In fact, on three different occasions, he raises someone from the dead. In fact, the world knows that Jesus truly is God because of this one completely undeniable fact, and that he, he literally is raised from the dead three days after he was placed in a grave. They crucified him, killed him, put him in a grave. Three days later, he rises from the dead. And Jesus made some rather startling statements. And one of the startling statements he made is found in Luke chapter 16, verse 13. Because when Jesus made this statement, it arrested people in their tracks. Because just like people today, people 2,000 years ago, 
we're just fine with the idea that you can love God and your money. You can have it all. And so listen to what Jesus had to say. It's real important that you know this, that it's impossible to serve two masters. So look at verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other. Okay, that makes sense. Or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Well, they, when Jesus said this, they're like, I got it. That, that makes a lot of sense. Because they lived with the institution of slavery. And a couple of things you need to know about a slave back in the ancient, ancient times is that a slave had no rights of his own and you had no time of your own. You literally did whatever the master wanted, how he wanted. You literally belonged to him. And so it would be impossible to be owned by two different masters. And so they're like, yep, that's exactly right, Jesus. There is no way you could have two masters. You're going to be devoted to one. You can't devote your life to both. But what leveled them is what Jesus said at the end of the verse. You cannot serve God and wealth. You see, they believed that you could. In fact, they had a system in which you could do just that. You could serve God and you could serve your money. You could love both. In fact, it was popular and it was esteemed and they justified themselves for doing that. Now, it is inevitable that you're going to serve one of two masters. And that is true when it comes to God and money. Who is it or which is it that you're going to serve? Now, wealth, you see that word there, you cannot serve God and wealth? The Greek word is mamonas, okay? And it's a really interesting word. It literally, it means to entrust. That, and so uh, that's what they did with mammon. That's what we might refer to as that, is that this was the money that they had, and they would entrust it to either some sort of safekeeping, like some sort of safety-type deposit box, or they would bury it, or you would entrust it to a banker, and he would watch it for you. But it's really curious how this word develops. It moved from that which you entrusted, the money you entrusted to someone, to literally that which you put your trust. And so by the time Jesus of Jesus' time, 2,000 years ago, mammon, mammonas, didn't mean that which you entrusted to someone. It meant that which you put your trust into. And that's exactly what money was. And so Jesus says, you can't serve both God and wealth. And money makes a highly attractive alternative Messiah. And Jesus said, you can't have both of them. Friends, let me, let me just say from the onset, in case you're like, oh, why did I come to church today? He's going to be talking about money. <gasps> it's not wrong for you to have wealth. And some of you have a lot of it. In fact, if you walked to church by your own free will, you got more than one set of clothes, and you had some sort of shelter, lean-to or apartment or house or something you slept in, you're wealthier than 90% of the people of the world. It's not wrong to have wealth. It's wrong when wealth has you. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. Now, let me also tell you this. You don't need to have a lot of money to serve wealth. In fact, there are people that actually don't have very much money, but they are consumed by the idea of getting it and wanting it and hoarding what little they have. And so it doesn't matter whether you have a lot or a little. Almost everyone in this room here, you would be considered you have a massive amount of money. You are very wealthy. It's not wrong to have wealth. It's wrong when wealth has you. And the Bible has a lot to say about money. There are over 2,000 verses 
in the scriptures that deal with money and possessions. Only 400 deal with prayer. In 16 of Jesus' 38 parables, they have something to do with money and possessions. In fact, one out of every 10 verses in the Bible deal with money and possessions. That's far more than have to deal with faith, heaven, or hell. So why does Jesus talk so much about money? Why does Jesus just go and stand up and make this statement that is literally going to cause a lot of people to be upset? And that is this, for this reason. How we handle our money reveals what we believe in our heart. How you and I handle our money, it reveals what we believe in our heart. Now, you cannot serve God and wealth. You can only be devoted to one. Now, let me just ask you, who are you serving? And don't be quick to go, oh, God, because let me give you some red flags that may indicate that you may have wealth as your master. Let me give you one. Rejecting Christ. If you want an example of this, look at the very next verse. You want to see some people that are not having God as their master but have wealth? Look at verse 14. How did they respond to Jesus' statement that you cannot serve God in wealth? Next verse. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. You see, the Pharisees, this is the religious sect that was the most uh, severe in terms of their following every single commandment of the law. They actually thought you could love God and money. In fact, they esteemed the idea that you could do both. And so what did they do? They were lovers of money. They were scoffing at him. If you love your money, you're going to find yourself rejecting Christ. Let me give you another red flag. Not only be scoffing about at Christ, but the next verse actually gives you another red flag. Well, Jesus was watching their interactions with him. They're scoffing him. Literally, it means to turn up your nose toward him. He said to them, quote, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. You esteem yourself and you justify yourself that it is perfectly fine to pursue both tracks, loving God and loving your money. But let me tell you, such a mindset is actually detestable toward God. Because what does he say? God knows your hearts. And that's what God is after. He doesn't want you just perfunctorily just showing up and going through some motions and acting all religious. He wants your hearts. And he knows what's going on in your hearts. Whether you know him or not, he knows your hearts. And God knows your hearts and you can't have two masters. You're going to have to figure out who is going to be the one you serve. Let me give you some other red flags. If you have an inability to follow Jesus, you just can't seem to follow him because you know what? Your riches have breeded some sort of self-sufficiency in your life. You don't really want Jesus. Uh, let me give you another red flag. A person hates to give no matter how pressing the need. You don't want to let go of your money because after all, it's all about the money, right? Well, let me give you another red flag. A person may be willing to sin to acquire more or to keep as much as they can. So, for instance, because money means so much to you, you're, you're willing to lie on your taxes. You're willing to fudge your expense account. You, uh, you don't mind taking a few things from the workplace. I mean, after all, it, it doesn't really matter. 
people that love money and actually have money as their master, they like to refer to different areas of their financial life or their work life as gray areas. That's not either right or wrong. You know, it's different thoughts on this. And so, yeah, we go ahead and forge signatures. Or, yeah, we kind of do it this way. We don't necessarily report all of these things. It's a red flag that money may be your master. Or let me give you another red flag. A person's sense of security in life is their wealth. Why are you okay? Why, why are you going to be all right in, in an, any economic storm or any storm? If you first think like, oh, man, I've got money in the bank. I just looked over my portfolio. I'm set. It doesn't matter how bad the storm I've got the finances. If you turn to your finances for your sense of well-being, security, and identity, whether you've got a little or a lot, it is a big red flag. Money may be your master. Well, let me give you another. If you think very little of eternity or the consequences of your devotion to wealth, you try, to, try not to think about those things, that should be a red flag. Because you know what? There are no U-Hauls behind hearses you can't take it with you in fact if you are fixated upon it if it is what owns you you are facing not the american dream but you're facing a nightmare of epic divine proportions so what are the effects of loving money well paul says in first timothy chapter six verse nine make sure people know this timothy He says this, but those who want to get rich fall in temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. If it is all about your wealth and what you can acquire and it's what keeps running through your mind and what gives you a sense of your identity and purpose and peace and security, it leads you to ruin and destruction. And he says in verse 10 of 1 Timothy, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. It's not the root of all evil. It's the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Money is alluring. It is attractive. And frankly, it's, got, it's, it's a primary tool in which Satan brings the hordes into hell. Because they, it's all about money. And we live in a society that reinforces it. And yet it has deadly effects. If you do not trust Christ, it has eternal deadly effects. And if you know Christ, but you keep being allured by finances and wealth, just like the text says, it's going to pierce you with many griefs. It causes angst, consternation, a disequilibrium in your soul. You're not made for money. You're made to know Christ and God. And when money is your master, it literally starts tearing you apart. Now, some people, on the other hand, feel like dealing with money, oh, that's just like a necessary evil. But I I don't want anything to do with, I don't want to do anything with money. It's not a necessary evil. Dealing with money is a necessary skill. But before you move to how do you skillfully deal with money, we have got to settle this issue, and it has to be now. Who is Lord of your life? You need to know before you walk out those doors, Who is the Lord of your life? You see, if you're going to serve God as your master, you need to know Christ as your Lord. You see, you and I are created 
by God, in his image, for him. And if you are not trusting in his son, whom he freely has given to this world, he dies and pays the penalty for our sin. He lived the perfect righteous life. He is the perfect sacrificial lamb. And he rises from the dead to give life, forgiveness to all who will believe in him. If you are not trusting in Christ, then you likely have to find another master. You're going to serve someone. God says, I want you to know my love. I want you to know the joy of the master. That means you've got to know my son. You have to turn away from your sin. And sin is literally missing the mark. It is trying to live life apart from God. It is trying to put your focus, your hope, your sense of identity and security in anything but him. It's all sin. Whether it's completely gross, whether it is illegal, or it is morally and socially acceptable. Life apart from trusting God as as he's revealed himself, is sin. And he says, I want you to believe in my son. You see, the more you see the greatness, the goodness, and the grace of Christ, you know what happens? The more you want to have him permeate every aspect of your life. And you are only as good as the object of your faith. So honestly, who or what are you trusting in? And don't give us some pat answer. Because your faith is only good as the object in which it is placed. And it simply goes like this. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. The issue is, are you trusting Christ? Because if you're not trusting him, you've got an alternative Messiah. Whatever it might be. And it very well may be money. But if you are, if you are trusting Christ then knowing God as your master requires that you and I learn how to manage the resources that he has given us and he's entrusted to us. If he's our master, we better get it figured out how he wants us to use his finances. He's God, we're not. And so what does that look like? How in the world do we become faithful in using the resources that God has given us? We have got to answer that question. And let me just tell you, the secular world, the non-believing world, generally does far better with their finances than most Christians. I'm not sure why. I don't know if it's like, oh, money is evil or something, so I don't want to, I'll just kind of plow through life. Or we go, eh, it's not important. Actually, it is critically important. Do you have money? Yes. Who gave that money to you? I earned it. Mm, you, you certainly may have had a job and you received money, but let me assure you, God is God and he has entrusted the resources you have, whether much or little, to your care. He expects you to be a good steward of them. So how do you be a faithful manager of the resources that God has given us? Well, let me, let me tell you where it all begins. It begins, first of all, by keeping Christ at the center of all aspects of your life you have to see jesus at the heart of all that you're doing not just when you show up at church this is this in the last 400 years there's been a lot of bad thinking but one of the biggest errors in thinking is that you got your church compartment and you got your secular compartment and you do your little church bit on sunday and you sing a few songs you pray act religious or whatever nice take a shower the day before or whatever and you show up and you do your church thing. And then when you walk out of the doors there, well, it's all up to you. It's, it's got your secular life and all your relationships, your hobbies, your pursuits, your jobs, everything 
how you spend your money, whatever. It's, it's, that's life apart from God. Then you come back on Sunday, sing a few songs, do the routine. Friends, that is not the Christian life. The Christian life is knowing Christ as Lord in every respect of your life. Most certainly your finances and your wealth. It is just a stewardship entrusted to you. God has given you resources. He expects that you are going to use them well. That requires that you actually know how to use them well. And so a steward is just someone, a person who manages another's property or financial affairs. And so when we talk about stewardship, it is really using the resources that God has given you for the purposes that God has given. That's what stewardship is. And God has given you what you have. That in itself may be rather startling. Every once in a while, it's real good for you and I to actually hit our knees and to remind ourselves who's God and who has given these things. When we thank God for what we've had and what he's given us, it keeps things in perspective. So the first thing, if you and I are going to be good financial managers of our finances, we must see Christ at the center of all of our activities. And let me tell you, your flesh is going to rebel Your flesh doesn't want to be a part of your entertainment. It doesn't want God a part of your entertainment. Your flesh, it doesn't want Jesus a part of your finances. And so you ask God, change my desire, shape me. So let me give you the second. If you're going to be a faithful manager of the resources that God has given you, you've got to keep Christ at the center of all aspects of your life. But second, you have to plan on how to make the most of your money. And so if you do not have a well-thought-out plan on how you're going to use your money, I want to tell you something. There's plenty of other people that do. And so you have to actually have some means of personally budgeting. Now, personal budgeting is when a person has a plan on how they will allocate the financial resources that they have before they spend them. You need to know where your money is going to go because God's the master. He's entrusted funds. If you're going to be a good servant, you've got to know how you're going to use the resources he's given you. Now, budgeting is like this. It's like worrying about how you're going to spend your money before you spend it rather than after. Okay? You're going to worry one way or the other. But budgeting is when you actually think it through before you spend it. And generally, it's like this, friends. If you don't have a plan, if you fail to plan, then you have a plan to fail. And if you are married, you need to talk about this. You need to pray together. God, what would you want us to do? What's your calling for us? And you have to be on the same page because if you are married and you're not on the same page with your finances, you don't talk about this. This leads to great havoc in relationships. And I've literally seen marriages pulled apart over this single issue they have never actually figured out what are they supposed to do with the money God's entrusted them. They may and I even never really thought too seriously that God is the one who's given it to them. Let me just give you a simple economic principle, whether you're a single, you're a couple, you're a family, or you're a government. You have to spend less than you make. <gasps> I know that that's startling to so some of you like, really? What, what is he talking about? Uh, it should be obvious, but it is not. And as we continue as a country plowing through this, people think like, this is the new normal. Of course you can live way beyond your means. Absolutely not. You have to spend less than your... Why not pick now the percentage of your income that you're going to live on? 
rather than have society or your impulses pick it for you. And let me just give you a very simple idea of what budgeting looks like. You take your income. It is a known quantity, income, the amount of money you receive by whatever means you're generating your revenue, minus giving, what you're going to give, taxes, minus debt repayment, minus savings, equals net spendable income. And that's just what you divide uh, for your various itemized expenses. So let me just tell you. So you have your income. We'll talk about giving a little bit. But then you must pay your taxes. And you have to plan how you're going to pay your taxes. And actually, our government actually has it this way, that if you give right and you save right, they will not take as many taxes as they ordinary or otherwise would if you'll do it right. But you must pay them. You've got to have a plan how to pay them. Don't just like, ah, tax day's here, I need money, and start digging in your backyard. It doesn't work that way. You've got to have a plan. You also have to plan on how you're going to retire debt that you have. If you have credit card debt, you have school loans, there's something called compound interest. And don't go, oh, I, just, I wasn't a finance major, so I don't have to worry about that. That is probably eating your lunch. You need to understand how it works, and you need to have a plan on how to get rid of that debt. And you also need to save. Let me assure you, there's going to be a day you're not going to be able to work as hard as you're working now for some of you. And you're going to need some income to have. Like, well, I got Social Security. Well, don't be so sure of it by the time you retire. And let me tell you, Social Security may not be what you think. Do you know how much you might actually receive? Because you'll find out, like, I can't live on that. (gasps) Well, it was never meant to be the solution and the end all uh, terms of retirement. So you're going to have to save some of your money. And you also need to save because there's some times where you're not going to have, you're going to face a circumstance or a difficulty or a sickness that you're going to need to be able to pay some money off. If you don't have savings, you're going to be in a very difficult situation. So you need to learn how to make a budget. And I've given you some resources in your study guide there, but there's like the new Master Your Money Workbook by Ron Blue that covers pretty much every aspect of financial stewardship. Wills, investments, debt, insurance, it's a great resource. Then Dave Ramsey's got the total money makeover. And basically that's addressing debt and behavior modification so you don't have to live in that. That's got tons of war stories from just normal people like you and me, how they got out of debt. And then there's Randy Alcorn's Money, Possessions, and Eternity. That kind of gives you the big picture. There's some real good resources on the web like Crown Financial. Crown.org's got great resources that are free. You just kind of click on that like, whoa, this is a wealth of great information. Or DaveRamsey.com. And then there's also there's financial advisors. There's, pe- there's people that specialize in how, on helping you make the most of your funds or talk to someone that's, that's good with their money. But don't live in ignorance. After all, if God is your master, you've got to become a good steward of the resources he's entrusted to you. Now, it's never too late to plan, but the sooner you begin, the better it's going to be for you. Now, in premarital counseling... When we do premarital counseling here, this is actually one of our requirements. We force all these couples to work out a budget to find out if they can even exist. It's a huge eye-opener for the U.S. Whoa! And then, we, hey, if you want to meet with a financial expert, we act for that service for free because it is so critical for laying a foundation for a healthy relationship. But for most people in the United States, guess what? They're just spending They're just out there. The bank will call me if I've spent too much, basically kind of mentality. They have really no idea what's going on with their finances. They don't know where they're going. They don't know how much money they have. They just kind of spend, spend, spend. They look, how much, what's my balance? Oh, great. 
I got $300 left. I'm good to go. And you just keep plowing forward. And the reality is, is that you are you're living a lifestyle that is likely beyond your means. And there's people that go, well, I would really like to have margin in my life and I want to be a good steward grant. But you know what? I just don't make enough money. Now, if I had a better job or more education, I'd make more money. And you know what? That may be true. There's no harm to try to get a better job or to get more education. But oftentimes the issue is this. It's not your income. It's your lifestyle. You're pursuing a lifestyle that is really beyond where you're at. And the reason that many people don't save is because they never have made a point to save. Let me tell you, wealth building can be wise. Learning to save is wise. Have you ever read the book of Proverbs? This is the book of wisdom. Literally, hokma means skill for living. It talks a lot about saving. In fact, it gives you little pictures like this one. In Proverbs chapter 30, verse 25, it says, The ants are not strong people, but they prepare their food in the summer. And you might be like, ants? Who cares about the ants and food in summer? Well, what God's trying to do is tell you something. You know those ants? You know why they're storing up food in the summer? Because they know that winter is coming, and they're not going to be able to find food. And so they're learning how to save, and they're doing it now. It's part of being a good steward. You're going to face the unexpected. You're going to have times where you're going to need a savings, whether that be when you retire or when you face some sort of uh, opportunity to give to a significant work that God is doing or there is someone that's in great need, if you don't have any savings, you're not going to be able to help. No matter where your heart is, how much you'd like to help, you're not prepared. You never learn the lesson from the ants. And really, saving money, saving money is not only wise, but you can save money wisely. Did you know that your money can make money? Really? Now, some of you have figured this out. There's a lot of people I found out that they didn't even, what are you talking about, money? Yes, you could put your money in a sock, but you better yet, you could save some money and you can actually make, put it in investments, wise investments, get somebody that's actually skilled in this. You can actually have your money make money, and frankly, it'll put you in a position where you can give far more if you learn how to save wisely. Because there's something called compound interest that works. And you can make money by saving money and doing it wisely. Now, when I'm talking about saving money, there's, there's going to be people here like, whoa, saving money? What money is there to save? And I'll tell you why you say that. Because we live in a culture that literally bombards us to spend everything you have, yay, more than you have. And this is a great Sunday to talk about this. Because in a few hours, America is going to be exposed to everything that you need to fill this God-shaped void in your life. Whether it be something you drink, something certainly that you buy, you drive, you wear. And most of it is completely unnecessary for well-being in life. It is all meant, the reason they're going to spend buco bucks, millions, for just a 30-second ad, is because they're trying to entice you and I to buy And frankly, it's pretty easy to do these days. The whole idea of using cash, mm, we've got things called credit cards these days. And I know most of you are totally unfamiliar with what these are, but let me just tell you it works. It's a little plastic card. It's a little plastic card, and you don't have to even have money to have one. And you can buy today most goods and services 
by just flashing this card. It gets scanned. It is so easy. Even if you don't have the money to repay it, it doesn't matter because it just gets accrued. And next thing you know, you get this little bill and you only have to pay the minimum balance. But let me tell you, these credit cards are making tons of money on people that are buying things they don't need and can't afford and they can only barely are buying just they're able to give the minimum payment and they're getting charged massive amounts of interest on that. In fact, studies show that if you, you will spend 80% more using your credit card than if you were using cash or check. And credit card companies know this, that for most Americans, if they can get you at $800 to get a balance of $800, they have you for life because most Americans can't pay off an $800 debt. And so they just start making the bare minimum and they own you big time. You know those trinkets that you bought? You know that stereo piece of equipment that you bought that you threw away last year? You've probably purchased that about four times by the time it's all said and done. They own you. Ron Blue, in his book, uh, The New Master Your Money Workbook, he had read about the statistic that you will spend far less if you use a cash system. So he and his wife, and they already lived on this totally bare-bones budget, thought to disprove it. And they did it for a whole year, just paying cash for every item. And then he found out, he said, even though we had a bare-bones budget, we sent 30, spent 33% less just paying cash. Now, what you want to do, you want to pay cash or check and or you can wisely use a debit card. But just remember, every time that card slides through, you have to, all those, those goods, they're going to be paid for. And that, that means that's going to get subtracted out of your account. I would only use a credit card if you are a good steward, meaning you pay that baby off every single month. You've got a pattern and track record. Yes, the dis- Discover will, it's the card that pays you back, but it doesn't pay you that much back, Right. And there might be accruing some air miles and stuff. And there's some smart ways of doing that, but most people do not have the self-discipline to make that work. And so you want to be very careful. You want to spend carefully. You want to avoid impulsive, instant gratification. Just because you see it doesn't mean that you need to buy it. But we live in a society, I mean, think of when you go through the grocery store. You're going in your little cart, you're trying to buy your stuff, and you're just bombarded by all this stuff. You need lipstick, and you need this, and you got these magazines with just crazy stuff. I'm like, people are picking that stuff up. Why? They're just all impulsive buying things. Now, uh, you want to avoid a consumptive lifestyle where you just have to buy things, buy things. Let me just tell you something. If you see the word sale on it, it doesn't mean you have to buy it. Really? I mean, sale does not, is not an acronym for spend all, leave empty, okay? It, it's not. And there was a guy who told me that when he felt bad, he just went shopping and he bought stuff. And he was actually showing me all this electronic stuff that he had in his house. And I was like, he told me that, that he bought this when he felt bad. He just like, so he buys these different components there. And I'm, I know that you ladies cannot relate. And so I'm telling you, there's a lot of us guys out there that uh, we, uh, we feel like we're almost addicted to spending. Okay, and we feel like we need to buy money. So, so would you ladies, I'm going to ask you, can you help us out? Can you help us out by setting a good example? Okay, I know you can't relate, right? Isn't that how it works? No, some of the ladies are going, ah. Okay, guess what? You want to avoid a consumptive lifestyle. Before you buy a big ticket item, why don't you research it and pray about it? 
Just because some salesman is working you over doesn't mean that you need to buy it. And I'll just tell you this, that uh, learning to live on a budget for my wife and I, it was probably one of the very best decisions we've ever made. We actually got started when we were engaged. I created a system of 26 five-by-seven cards and tracked all of our expenses, and then we set a budget off of that. That was perhaps one of the very best decisions we've ever made. Friends, if you're going to have Christ as your master, you've got to plan on making the most of your money. Let me give you just a couple other ways that you and I can become a faithful manager of the resources God has given us. Learn to give to the Lord graciously. One of the primary ways you know what's going on in your heart is to look at what you do with your money. That is especially true in the area of giving. Jesus said this in Luke 12, 34, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Or Proverbs 3, 9, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. You see, we express a love for God. We esteem him through our giving. We give to God because we see his worthiness and his greatness. It is a response. It's not a duty. In fact, it's a delight, and it is grace-motivated giving. The New Testament doesn't set a percentage. It talks about grace-motivated giving, like 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must do as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We give with joy and delight. And in fact, it's interesting, in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, he said, I want you to know of the grace of God that is taking place in Macedonia and these churches. And Macedonia was a province of Rome that actually had been just depleted because of war. And yet he says, I want you to hear about these believers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, it says, that in great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. They were poor, They were ravished, but they're giving liberally. And he says, For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. They gave because they love Christ. And it is grace-motivated giving. And if you do not purposefully actually set in your heart and in your mind and in your actions how you're going to give and what you're going to give, it is likely that you rarely give as an expression of worship. Let me give you one big error, and that is the 10% error, okay? Now, I know that I'm going against the grain, probably most things you hear on the radio, and actually probably what most churches teach. However, look at the scriptures. The scriptures actually never actually say give 10% in the New Testament. They don't. Now, one of the big problems with the 10% mentality is this. Well, all right, that's a lot of money, but I'll give God 10%. Is that net or gross? And then can I have these big debates on whether I'll let you wrestle with that. And this is the idea. I'll give that to God and then I'll do whatever I want with my money. And frankly, if I give that to God, God should probably give more to me. He generally seems to bless that way. So you know what? We start using God for a means for our ends. Well, I'll give God more money and he'll give me more money. That's kind of like God's like this little genie. I give him more. He gives me more. And I've got more for myself. Well, that's not that's not worshiping God. You know what that is? That's using God. And so what we do is we give out of a joyful response to who God is. Now, it's really interesting, like even in the Gospel of Luke, there's different percentages that are given. Like, how much should I be giving to God? In Luke 18, 22, there's this rich young ruler. He is totally loaded. Jesus says, you want to follow me? Because that's what the guy's asking. He says, great, give it all. And he went away. Well, that's interesting. Do you have to give it all? Luke 11, 
uh, Jesus addresses them and says, you tithe in verse 42. He says, that's good. That's 10%. That's what tithe means, a 10%. In Luke 19.9, there's this guy named Zacchaeus. He's a well-to-do IRS agent. He's made all sorts of money, much of it illegally. At least uh, he's taking funds that really don't belong him. He gives away 50%, and Jesus tells him, wow, let me assure you, this is very good. It actually is an indicator that salvation has come to this house. So what is it? If you're a type A person, you know, you want the gold star in giving, what is it? Is it all of it? 50%, 10%, right? What is it? The New Testament never gives a percentage. It is grace-motivated giving. It is giving from the heart. Now, 10% is a great benchmark. And frankly, it, it, many of us can do this. But it's not limited to 10%. It is grace-motivated giving. But if you're going to be a good steward of the resources that God has entrusted to you, you, learn, you need to learn how to give graciously. Let me give you finally... This is one you probably weren't expecting. You need to enjoy what God has entrusted to you with thankfulness. God has given you financial resources to supply for your needs, to supply for the kingdom's needs, and even for you to enjoy. Look at this. Paul says this. Timothy, I want you to tell the churches this. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Did you see that? God actually has given us things like a father gives to his kids so that we'll enjoy them. And he says, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Who gives these riches to us? God does. And why does he do it? Because he wants us to honor him and glorify him through our, the use of the finances that he's entrusted to us. And that fellowship, we have a goal that every person knows Christ deeply in a mature way and that every believer is giving generously. I'll tell you, at Fellowship, there are, there are a lot of people that are doing just that. How do you know? I'll tell you one way I don't know. Did you know that no one, no elder, no pastor, no one knows what anybody gives at Fellowship except one person, the bookkeeper, and I tell her, then I want you to forget as soon as you record it. Because giving is unto the Lord. But I do know just by the work that God continues to do, and as we're starting to take even some of these next steps, that God is moving in his people to give generously. And for all of you who are, I want to thank you and praise God for such a work. But God wants every single person, if this is your home church, just get started. Every believer giving generously. And we have three different ways that we emphasize giving. We have a general fund, which is kind of our monthly for monthly giving, which covers the ministry expenses on a month-to-month basis. We have a capital fund. I think many of you know, unless you're new, we're in the process of raising an additional $1.3 million so we can expand our campus because we're running out of space in some different places at different times. And then we have missions. We would encourage people in our church to get to know missionaries and support them. And you can actually do so through the church. We don't take anything from that. We give directly to these missionaries so that the gospel will go forth throughout the world. And so, friends, this week, I want you to get it figured out. Don't just go, whew, wow, that was a lot of information. 
I want you to start a benchmark. Where am I at financially? God, what do you want to do? And take the next step. If you have children, train them. They are likely going to learn about how to use finances from you. Recently, I heard from a guy, and he told me that he didn't know anything about how to use money. Everything he knew about how to use money going into marriage, he learned from his friends and watching Seinfeld. I'm like, what, what, what are you going to learn there, right? Those guys, did they even have jobs? I don't know, you know. So we can do better than that, and we must. In fact, we'll have a class you might be watching for in the next up, coming up month. But how we handle our resources reveals what we believe in our heart. And friends, I'd like to have you hear from some, a couple in our church, and I'm going to ask if the Snyders, Jerry and Jenny, if you'd come up here, I would like for you to hear a little bit of their story. I think uh, you know the Snyders from, uh, Jenny uh, leads one of our Bible studies. I think you've seen Jerry running around here. So good to have you guys up here. Can you guys share just a little bit about what God's done? I'm going to hold the mic close. All sure. right. Great. Um, well, it's amazing uh, what God has done in our lives. Um, going back about six years ago, uh, we were squandering in debt just like most Americans. And we wanted everything, and we've just figured if we can afford the payments, then we can get it, and we'll go with it. And uh, two cars, a boat, travel trailer, um, no kids. So we were like, just spend the money, spend the money. Um, and some friends kept telling us, you need to hear about this guy, Dave Ramsey. You need to hear about this guy, Dave Ramsey. And I wouldn't, I was just, I know what I'm doing. I can do it myself. Um, came from a family of, of debt. My dad, when I graduated college, had over $100,000 in debt. So I was like, this is normal. Well, uh, radio station changes and Dave Ramsey comes on. And I was like, okay, God, I'll listen. After five minutes, I was like, what the heck have I been doing with my life with money? So just to give you a little background, um, July 31st of 2007 is where we started. We had $74,000 in debt outside of the house, 33000 on credit cards um, and loans for those cars and boats and everything. And uh, our combined income was under 90000 So it's not like we had this huge income to deal with it. Um, neither one of us is doctors. Um, you know, I mean, I got a measly 2.6 in college. So, um, you know... But yes, I graduated. Um, so, but we did a budget, and we figured out that there was a lot of money that was just going out the door. And so we decided we were going to live on nothing, and we did. And in two years, in two weeks, on April 14, 2009, we sent our last payment off to pay for her Jeep, which she's still driving. Um, and so it comes out to not including the interest in everything that we paid off. Uh, we also added in that we saved up for an adoption uh, that was around $16,000. We basically paid off half of our income every year was going to debt to pay it off. Um, very difficult, very tough. But it was the only way we were going to be able to start a family, and I knew that. And so that's what we did. Um, in God's sovereignty he showed us that we really did what we were supposed to do because from when we paid off debt three months later we had saved up three months emergency fund and we brought abigail home and she was able to stay home and she's been home ever since so um to me it was just god saying you listened now here you're going to get this um so then 
the government has a great tax refund, tax credit, if you adopt, which almost paid for Ty's adoption when we brought him home. Um, so it's just amazing how that whole cycle has gone. And now we have savings that if we need it, we can go get. Um, we live on bare bones. Um, we're, we're not normal uh, because we don't have any debt, but we're normal because we make the average American income. And we're able to, to live off of that. Um, so several key verses that, that I went over. One is uh, Proverbs 22.7. Um, the borrower is slave to the lender, and I took that to heart. Um, I didn't want to be slave to anybody but God, and that's that's where my focus was. And so I just prayed about it every day. I don't want to do this anymore. And if I could get her to do it, I'd sell a house and we'd buy a shack somewhere because I don't want to have the mortgage anymore. But <laughs> but I don't. I yeah, can't do that. So. Um, Another one that, that resonated with me um, is First Timothy 5, verse 8. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And that's the American, the American dream is to go out and have everything you want and, and do all these things and be in debt and be slave to everybody. And, and you forget about taking care of your family. And, and then divorce comes into the picture because you're fighting about money. Um, and I didn't want that. And we didn't we didn't give a whole lot to anybody else during this time period. We gave to church a little bit. Um, you know, I, I never was brought up in the 10%. I was just brought up in, you give, give what you can. And so we gave, honestly, very, very little. Um, now we make almost half of what we did then, and we give five to six times more to the church. And we give to other organizations. We give to our adoption agency. We give to friends that go on mission trips. Um, and we plan for it, and we budget for that. Uh, and it's just unbelievable feeling to be able to do that and know that that's just what we're supposed to do. And lastly, uh, before I give Jenny a chance to, to say something, uh, another verse that, that I have that um, has really changed my life is uh, James 1:27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and fault, faultless is this. Look, to, uh, look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world and that came to me before we ever adopted um and it actually came to me when when our neighbors um he passed away and she's a widow and so i go over and do whatever she needs fix her garage door or light bulbs or whatever and but that resonated with me and, and it was always orphans and widows not just widows and then we adopted, and now it, it, it truly has come to mean, to mean both for me. Thank you. Oh. Okay. Okay. Um, and, and with all this, it's, it's not easy. I was not a big shopper, so it's not like I was buying a new outfit every day. But it was little things. And Jerry and I don't, you know, my parents would say, you, you can have the kitchen table. We'll buy a new one. And. You know, we would never just take something. We'd say, we want to pay you for that. And so that's always been something strong between us. Um, but it was the little things. Um, the dollar store or just spending $20 here and there. And that's what really was difficult to sit down and talk about and budget every time. And a lot of it was just surrendering. Just surrender that God's going to provide and give you, um, and he's sufficient. And 
and not stress about, you know, having the biggest house. Or, um, and it's not about that in so many ways. And that's something that was hard on this journey, not just the financial journey, but the spiritual journey of it all is that, you know, just surrender that. And um, people were coming out of the woodwork when we said, you know, we, we want to adopt and um, people were wanting to help us in any way we could. And, you know, for both of us, we were always buying brand new things. And one of the things to surrender with that is that it's okay. People wanting to give, it, give us, you know, the hand-me-downs and $5 towards our adoption or 100 I mean, it just came on and on and on. And, um, and it was just really enlightening to know that people are out there to help one another. And God puts us through the struggle of infertility and, and all the things to reach this point that God knows that we're stronger than we think we are. And he gives us that strength and shows us in small ways. And, I mean, that's what Jerry and I want to do is, is encourage others to, that you can do it and you can get out of debt and crawl out of that and, and live on a modest budget. And, I mean, I have cash in my little envelope, and that's what I pay for, which, <coughs> side note, very difficult to keep track of how much money you're spending in the grocery store with two little ones fighting in the cart. But you do that. You do that because it is worth it, and it's what God has given us. And, um, and we just keep trucking along and communicate. We text all the time, hey, I'm, you know, need to go get more cash to put in the budget and so we can talk more about it. And it's, it's communicating um, between each other. And... And it's true. What she, I mean, because we'll talk and we have a certain amount of money, and she'll tell me, "Hey, I need cash because I spent it all at the grocery store." And it's not a fight. It's not a why did you spend all the money? It's because we have a set amount. And okay, well, you haven't hit that yet, so let me get you some cash and I'll put some more in there. Um, and she tells me, "Don't put more than a hundred dollars in there because I'll spend it. Huh. I'll spend it all, and then we'll get to the end of the month and we won't have any more." And so we have a limit as to how much we put in there at a time. And, and, yes, there's rice and beans in our fridge right now from Thursday night because we didn't have anything else to eat. And so it was like, hey, that's what, what we're going to eat because it's cheap. Um, so we still do that. We still live it every day. Um, and and it's amazing what God has, has given to us through this and the opportunity to tell everybody. And I just want to let you know, if you're out there and you're like, oh, that we can never do it, um, you know, it took several times. It took getting beat over the head for me to be able to finally say, okay, I'll, I'll listen, I'll do it. If you're in that position, talk to us. We'll be happy to share. We'll be happy. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. I'm just going to give you some, some support. Um, we have family members. We would love to be on this plan that are not, and they struggle, and they struggle, and we see them do it. And so it, it's tough from that aspect, and we try and support. And so if you would just pray for that for us, that would be awesome for us. Um, but, I mean, that's, that's our story. That's awesome. Thank you very much. All right. Well, you know, how you handle your money reveals what you believe in your heart. So why don't we pray? Lord, what an awesome Sunday of worship to you. You've redeemed us through the blood of the Lamb. You've called us completely unto yourself to be set apart to you in every respect, including our finances. So God... Would you have your way in our midst? May we continue to be trophies of your grace. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.